We recently launched Liberation Martial Arts Online for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free or perhaps one that came directly from us. Thanks to Mitch Gallman, Michael Lucas, and Annadelle Walker for signing up. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online, or you just want to increase your financial support for the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows also on Patreon. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. This episode was sponsored by S.H., M. Shelton, Berkshire People's Gym, and New Guy. Coach Jason and I are back with Fight Study UFC 280. Now, before we get into our study, let's give some honorable mentions. In my UFC 280 preview, which I'll link in the show notes, I mentioned that Manan Fiero is one to watch. And she showed that by beating the number one contender, Caitlin Chukagian. The veteran fight between Nikita Krylov versus Volkan Ostamir delivered. So did Benil Dariush versus Mateus Gamrot. Also, Dariush is making a name for himself for giving the most cringe post-fight interviews without even trying to be a heel. Reminds me of Brother Love from WWE, or back in the day, WWF. He told a mostly Muslim crowd in Abu Dhabi that the only true freedom is in Jesus Christ. It's up there with a speech asking Elon Musk for a car and claiming communism was taking over the world. Cringe. Despite that, his fight with Gamrot was a banger. But let's get into our first study. Let's look at Islam Mahachev winning the vacant lightweight title by beating former champion Charles Oliveira. Oliveira was on an 11-fight win streak, winning 10 of those by finish, and the decision he had over Tony Ferguson was only because Ferguson wouldn't tap. On top of that, he finished Justin Gaethje, Dustin Poirier, Michael Chandler, and Kevin Lee. I'm saying all this to put into context how impressive it is to finish Oliveira. This is Mahachev's 11th win in a row. And overall, he's 23-1. and one. Other than his fight with Armand Sarukian, who's another prospect to watch, all his fights have looked easy. I also want to point out that he's finished his last five opponents and made all of those fights look easy. He's not even losing rounds anymore. No one has dominated and finished Oliveira like he has. Even fights Oliveira has lost, his opponents still had to walk through fire but not this time. Oliveira's last loss was to someone you used to coach, Paul Felder. And even there, Felder had to walk through fire. It's amazing that the two best lightweights came from the same camp, all trained by Abdulmanap Nurmagomedov. Jason, Oliveira getting in trouble in round one is nothing new, but lately he adjusts from that and comes back to brutalize his opponents. Was there anything you saw in round one that made you question whether Oliveira would be able to do that in this fight? 
Yeah, right off the bat. I mean, I think we had to take note of um, Islam Makhachev and his just sheer physicality. Like when they clashed, when they bumped each other, when they both engaged at the same time and broke down that distance, um, it was Islam who maintained positioning and Oliveira who was bumped back on his heels. And that hasn't happened to Oliveira in a while. And, you know, we can all armchair quarterback, but, and I'll say this probably throughout the episode, but if it's not broke, don't fix it. And Oliveira was having a ton of success fighting the way he had been fighting. But when, uh, I forget if it was in the first or second round where he beats, um, he beats Islam inside and gets double underhooks, but he's the one back on his heels because Islam is a motherfucking brick wall and just takes a step forward. So much as a brick wall could start walking forward and throwing punches, but he bumped him back on his heels. And I think you heard DC talk about um, Oliveira. Oliveira didn't pull guard there. He got bumped back. He would have been happy to take that top position. And against anybody that isn't Islam Mahachev, he probably would have. How did Mahachev look in this fight? He looked fantastic. Islam Mahachev looked outstanding. He was just Big, strong, fast. You know, he was quicker with his hands, more confident, really more confident in his striking, and was slick with his right hook. And we saw him scoring with the three-two early and using that that right hook to set up the outside foot position against Oliveira and score with a a really nice uh, left straight a couple of times. So I mean, he was doing doing the right things, and he seems to be progressing and improving, and not just relying on what are some ridiculously. Um, outstanding outlier type gifts in his strength which translates into um excellent wrestling and grappling as well he seems to be building off of those and not just sort of you know setting settling with just what he's already good at he's continuing to build now you just mentioned how mahachev looked big so here's a question i have for you mahachev visibly looked like the bigger fighter but it was Charles Oliveira, who had the harder time making weight, not only for this fight, but his last several fights. And Mahachev, as far as we know, he hasn't had difficulty in making weight ever. So why is the fighter who looks smaller having a harder time than the fighter who looks visibly bigger? I don't know. I don't know if they have the, if Oliveira's camp has the weight cut dialed in or not, or you know, physiologically we have certain differences. I, uh, who who holds on to water more for what reason, or who processes carbohydrate? We talk about a water molecule attaching itself to one gram of carbohydrate, um, and who's paying closer attention, or whose body processes more efficiently in terms of glycogen synthesis and hydrolysis for um, for energy production. Like we can get into all that, but like, I, I, it, it's tough to say. You know, sometimes a fighter in this camp can be doing all the right things and can still have. A difficult weight cut other folks look like you know and i'll say this i used to i used to do paul felder's weight cuts and he was very very large for the weight class even back then and i would try some of the same protocols with other athletes and you know it's it <laughs> no pun intended but it's pretty fluid like you have to adjust on the fly with um you know how someone's body is resp responding and you can't just cookie cut a protocol from one fighter to another so it's really tough to answer but it sounds like it's not just about size then. You can't just assume somebody is bigger, so they're going to have the harder time than the person who's smaller. Absolutely. Some people just might shed water a little bit easier and their ability to, to rehydrate without such as 
significant of uh, such significant detrimental effects from what what can be a really draining weight cut. Some people just recover better, so it, it's really tough to say. But I think, and I don't, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think because of how dialed in Russia and the former Soviet Union was with all their amateur sports, amateur boxing, weight mandated, and amateur wrestling weight mandated i think they're on top of that and i think they always they always have been so i think the eastern european countries tend to you know going back to some of the, the amateur uh amateur combat sports background seem to be really dialed in especially in the weight cutting now opponents have talked about how freaky strong Oliveira is on the ground but when it hit the ground did it look like Oliveira had the strength advantage See, this is an excellent question, and I was hoping that, that you would ask that because it should be clear to most anyone uh, that in the areas where Oliveira is usually the stronger fighter, areas like the clinch, right, pummel position, uh, pummel position in space, jockeying for position against a cage, Machev was obviously stronger. And it wasn't just explosive and dynamic strength. Like he was rigid when he needed to be rigid. rigid. You know, like I said, Machev was like a brick wall at times. Um, and he beat. Even when Oliveira beat him to his hips, or even when they collided, and we spoke about this before. Like though, you and I spoke about this in an episode before. Though Charles has very much improved his wrestling, there are still some technical problems that his physical strength and athleticism compensate for. Now, against Islam, where he does not have a strength advantage, actually he has a strength disadvantage. Charles doesn't have the same strength advantage that we've seen uh, him have against. Many other top tier opponents, right? And now some of those technical imperfections become a little more glaring. He doesn't have that strength advantage to compensate. And I know, I know Paul Felder very well, but if you watch Felder's fight against Mike Perry, a fighter he is definitely better than in, in, in stand up, grappling, cardio across the board. But the one advantage that Mike Perry had over Paul was physically just a little bit stronger being 170 pounder and like Perry's a strong guy. And you saw some of the things that fighters like Paul are used to doing against when you're used to doing things a certain way and you're strong enough to do them. And now you're not. Well, that can be a bit of a mental fuck you to a fighter. And I think that's sort of what we saw with Charles whenever he wasn't the stronger fighter in there. Some of those imperfections in technique not just became glaring, but we became a little bit problematic since those are places he likes to put himself. Something we've talked about previously is how Oliveira is known for taking over the fight in the clinch. I said in my preview, the clinch would be inevitable based on how they both fight. When they got there, Oliveira was not able to dictate the clinch. What was Makachev doing to win the clinch battles? I think we have to look at a strength advantage just for a second, coupled with a technical wrestling advantage for, for Islam Mahachev. You know, so Charles gets a little bit over aggressive in his offensive wrestling. Given that he's fine off his back, if he fails with an offensive takedown, looking for top position, because he feels that it, it doesn't matter. Because if Charles hits the ground either on the top position or the bottom position, it's an advantage for him. So defensive wrestling and errors of aggression don't seem truly that important to him. And honestly, they, have, they haven't needed to be um, of much importance during his run to the title, right, in his last 11 wins. His skills in other areas have more than compensated for those deficiencies. But again, we see with Islam, 
well, shit, he just poses a significant set of problems physically, you know, which in turn creates problems stylistically if you stay in that sort of, hey, I fight how I fight mindset. One of the ways that Oliveira is able to take over in the clinch is because a lot of his opponents are afraid to grapple with them at all. And so they start trying to back away. A lot of times backing away, leading backwards with their ass, like ass out. And so because they're already like that or they're trying to back away because they don't want to get in the clinch, he's able to grab them in a certain way and break their posture, right? We talk about breaking posture when someone's in your guard where you're trying to snap their head down. But Charles is already starting that process while they're standing. And I didn't realize this until this fight. The reason why he's able to break their posture and keep snapping their head down into tie clinches, to guillotines and whatnot is because they already have their posture broken. They're already breaking their own posture, trying to back away. Whereas Mahachev was doing the opposite. He was doing something that all the previous Oliveira opponents weren't doing, which was he was driving forward with his hips. So he was standing tall, and instead of backing out with his ass, he was coming forward with his hips, getting chest to chest, because he also wanted to get in the clinch. And so what I saw was when Oliveira didn't have the ability to break Mahachev's posture and break him down like that, a lot of his clinch game started to fall apart. It started to fall apart, right? And he also was the one having to make positional adjustments. So he couldn't hit some of the same stuff that he likes to hit with the same kind of authority, like his knees and his elbows inside. When you have to continuously fight for position with your underhooks and sort of bump and pivot to create a little bit of space against the cage, because the guy in front of you is so is so physically strong and he's coming forward, you can't really get on your game. And I think that's what, what we saw there. Because Oliveira is great in even when he's pushed against the cage. He's great at, at sort of like micro adjustments, but still having a continuation of offense. Elbows, knees, he's gonna bump, he's gonna pivot just a little bit, and when you counter adjust, he's scoring. He wasn't able to, and when he was trying to, he gave up position. Like I I saw that that Uchimata or wizard wizard kick, whatever you want to call it. I saw that coming. Like it seemed like it was it was there for like three or four seconds before we was even hitting it. He just sort of threw a knee and sort of left his hip turned. And you can't make those mistakes against against Islam. And I think that I don't wanna to like say Mahachev's just a, because he's a, such a physically strong human being that the rest of his skill set doesn't matter. They've developed a ridiculous skill set, a really smart, strategic skill set built around that, built around his physical attributes. That's what great coaches and great camps do. So I'm not harping on that, like, ah, if he wasn't as strong, he wouldn't. Well, if he wasn't as strong, he might be working on his quickness. And who knows how good they are at doing that, at developing that. I'm just saying he is really strong and he's been able to sort of cultivate the other skill sets based on that. He's, and he's, he is technically a better wrestler than Oliveira. We spoke about Oliveira's um, body lock. And he's able to get away with some, some slop in that position because he's pretty strong and he's really aggressive. And if he gets taken down, he gets taken down either in an over-under position or with double-unders, and he's fine there also. It's not, it's not how you want to fight Islam. It's just a fucking bad idea, right? It's just a bad idea. Islam is strong in the top position. 
He doesn't give up gimme submissions. He doesn't uh, spam wild ground and pound that's going to get him thrown in a triangle. He's just, he's just, he's physically strong. He's also a rigid body type where he's very hard to move. And it's a huge energy spend trying to do some of the more dynamic stuff that, uh, that Dobronx is known for. So, you know, they've, they've built, at 31 years old, they've built a bit of a problem at 155 pounds in Islam Mahachev. Was this a fight where one fighter looked good and one fighter looked bad? Or was it more that neither showed us anything new and both fought like they usually do? And stylistically, if they both fight like they usually do, that gives Mahachev the advantage. Well, I think you nailed it there, right? With what, the last sentence. Like, both fighters seem to stay in their wheelhouse with the uh, fuck it, if it ain't broken, don't fix it mentality. And when, when you have like a combined 22 wins between the two of you or 21 wins, like, why would you, right? So um, if you've been having the success that Islam and Charles have, you're not going to really make those kinds of adjustments. And so what you saw was the, the way Charles was winning you would sort of be crazy unless you had sparred Islam to know how physically strong he was and the problems he posed for you to think that, I mean, that you couldn't have an answer for it with as good as you've been against the cage in clinch positions and off your back throughout your entire UFC career. And still there weren't, I mean, I don't want to say Oliveira had him in danger, but he was still hitting some pretty cool stuff even when he was sort of getting beat up. He almost he threw up triangles and he was you know he was hitting some really good shit that like almost like say ninety nine percent of championship caliber opponents would have been at least had to really really fight out of a triangle right off the bat um, and even a little bit of funk that looked like it was going to be uh, uh, either a heel hook transition or some sort of leg lock transition and he came out the back door took. Uh, Islam's back for a second, but Islam too big, too strong, too good of a scrambler, too good of a technical wrestler to to give anything up that easily. And it really wasn't easy, but to give anything up without even more of an effort. I kept thinking about what Coach Javier Mendez said, and I think DC has also said the same thing that you know amongst fighters the same size, nobody could beat Habib Nurmagomedov in sparring. Other than Islam Mahachev, which sounded like towards the end, they were going 50-50. That made me think, you know, I don't think you're going to use a finesse style. And uh, Mahachev doesn't even have that kind of like super flexible BJJ guard game style to try to stifle them that way. So then I was like, they must be of equal strength. And sometimes Mahachev wins and sometimes Nurmagomedov wins. So I was like already thinking Oliveira has underrated strength, but I was like, I think he's going to fight somebody in Mahachev who is just as strong as Nurmagomedov. And th- those were my considerations as well. You know, the, and I, I've been preaching about how I think the Oliveira's strength is underrated because like, they think he's a skinny guy. He's coming up from 145. He's very physically strong. He, he actually bullied Paul Felder around in that first round. And, uh, and no, no one really does that. Of course, it gassed him out. But I also think going strength for strength when you're used to being the stronger fighter can cause some cardio problems. And I don't want to say that cardio is necessarily a factor, but he seemed, um, Oliveira that is, Oliveira seemed a little bit tired because he was really, really working when other, you give max effort, 
you expect that person to be on their back. You don't expect to give max effort, then give max effort again, then one more time and end up on your back and then have to go balls out to try to get back to your feet. When normally that first time energy spend is what lands you in a dominant position and you can control your breathing from that position, look for your stuff, be a little bit more uh, strategic and take your time rather than continuously having to work at, at maximum effort. And that's what you saw in that first round. Um, and even like whenever they would shoot at the same time where they, there was like a clash of heads, I think in the second and it bumped, it bumped, uh, Oliveira back on his heels. And that's when I was like, damn it. Like, I love, I love me some Dobrox. I do. And I was like, I know how this is going to go. I just do. And then when he landed that up kick, I jumped out of my, my seat. I was like, yeah. <laughs> if you get catch Sargas rooting for up kicks, and you realize that the, the fighter he's rooting for is in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> People talk a lot of shit about Mahachev striking and his defense and his footwork. I think it's because he's so dominant on the ground. People think all his talent went into the ground and there's nothing left as far as striking. But he was hitting Oliveira clean and was out of the way when Oliveira fired back. So is Mahachev striking and footwork underrated? Unequivocally, yes, his footwork is underrated um, and it continues to improve, but it is far from perfect, honestly. You know, but like I said earlier, he was pretty slick with his right hook and he used it well to score with the left straight um which i think gave uh gave Oliveira pause over and over and that that hook did some damage and ended up being the punch that dropped him in the second but it also was landing behind his head a little bit so when he was trying to crash that distance and he would run into you know a big strong macho it was it was still problematic you know and, and also there's plenty we could do as fight coaches that would make uh islam look like a better boxer or kickboxer there's plenty but that would also make some of his wrestling transitions and entries a lot more difficult you know so a lot of the armchair quarterbacking needs to be aware of that trade-off but at, at this point and given islam's skill set and grappling dominance you know heard me talk about his strength also i'm really fine with the incremental improvements in his stand-up and i really hope we continue to see them improve in a, a measured and strategic manner but you know fuck it's this is mma you know these asshole fans will probably just call that shit boring no matter how many finishes <laughs> he gets no matter how many finishes he gets in a row so what the fuck do i know but i i do know that islam at 31 years old is incredibly talented and he may be a problem at 155 pounds for a while there was another title fight on this card champion aljamain sterling versus former champion tj dillashaw but there's not much to study here because Dillashaw was not only injured in the fight, he went into the fight with one arm. His arm basically dislocates every time he moves it. So Sterling dominated him and finished him. But this fight taking place in Abu Dhabi, as far as I know, it's not under the jurisdiction of any of the major athletic commissions. I know they have their own athletic commission here, but we don't know much about it. And so most of this is the UFC basically policing itself. And it seems like they've known about the injury for a while. Dana White says he doesn't. But Dillashaw was missing a lot of the training stuff, the video stuff, the interview stuff, the filming stuff. You know, maybe it's one of those plausible deniability things where they're like, we know, but don't tell us explicitly. But then 
even listening to Daniel Cormier and some other people, he was like very transparent with anybody about his injury beforehand. And he even told the referee. And ultimately, Sterling should have been fighting Marlon Vera and we would have gotten a better fight. It's fucking disgusting. And if Dana White didn't know about it, if he didn't know his his fighter, uh, uh, former world champion at 135 pounds, fighting for the current title at 135 pounds, was that injured? Then he's really bad at his fucking job and needs to fuck off. That's it. That's it. It is a slap in the face to combat sports. I'm tired of this fighter's fight. No, injured fighters heal. They recover. They go have fucking surgery. And they let the next in line step up and do the fucking job as it's supposed to be done. Right? We wouldn't let him go in there with five stitches in his head. We wouldn't. No athletic commission would. Why would you let a guy who's had over 20 dislocations in an eight-week period, why would you let him compete for a world title? Beating Aljamain Sterling is almost fundamentally impossible with both arms at this point. You're going you're gonna to send him, send him in with one arm down and a fucking year and a half, two-year layoff? That's silly. And I get it. Fighters fight. Let them do it. Hey, go out on their shield. Fuck that. You cost the fans a ton. You cost the, the gamblers and anyone who had money on, on uh, TJ Dillashaw a ton. And it just makes a joke of the fucking sport. It just looked silly. He posted, he posted his arm off that first takedown. And I've had seven shoulder surgeries on my left arm, three on my right. Trust me, I know a thing about two about it. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions, like you're hearing now, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi, or show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. To think you can go in there and compete at that level is silliness. But he hadn't competed in a while. And fighters fight, but fighters also have to fucking pay bills. And I get that. Fighters have to pay their their team and their coaches. So everyone has uh, some sort of financial gain tied to him competing. So at what point do you ever put your fighter's best interest uh, you know, at, at, the, at the forefront of your, your decision-making? And I don't think anyone fucking did. But again, like all of it, all of it sort of turns my stomach. And I, I get it. It's great capitalistic fucking bullshit machine of the UFC and the metaverse and whatever fuckery is falling apart. I'm sorry, man. I'm going on a rant. I'm sorry, I'm sorry man. <laughs> my apologies. No, the fight should not have taken place. Since you've had so many shoulder surgeries, let me ask you this. When you have a shoulder like that where it's progressively getting worse as far as like it's looser and getting looser and looser. Can you fix that with surgery? So what you're looking at is with that kind of chronic deformation or, or chronic dislocation, is you're looking at a, some sort of bone um, deformation, um, what they call it a Hillsack or Hillsack's deformity, where when it dislocates, it rubs that portion of the glenoid labrum, right? Where the, he- the humeral head, rubs the ball rubs the socket and at some point 
it'll form a nice little deformity where it'll rub away a portion of the bone. And then it's a, it's a nice little track for it to leave. It just pops out. So to compensate for that, and I don't know, I'm not a surgeon, of course, I'm not a orthopedic surgeon, but I do know that like they will try at, at certain points, they try, so it becomes a quality of life thing and they try to make the joint a little bit tighter, um, which try being a fighter as dynamic um, or a wrestler as positionally aware and as quick as TJ Dillashaw and tell him, hey man, we're going to decrease your range of motion of that shoulder, even though you punch with both hands and you're always changing stances um, in in and out of wrestling positions coming in underhooks. And we're going to decrease that range of motion by maybe 7 to 15%, but it'll never dislocate again. Are you the same? Are you the same fighter at that point? I also want to mention that during his time off, he got surgery on both shoulders. So this is happening to a shoulder that's already been operated on. That's the death knell of his fight career, I'm telling you. Everything changes. Everything changes. And I'm assuming that the repair is going to be pretty extensive. And, um, you know, just the lack of range of motion, being in a sling. The it, Granted, there's going to be a greater commitment to his recovery because he's a top-tier athlete in a professional sport, if we can still call MMA a professional sport at this point. But um, I, there's probably going to be a, a greater level, a greater standard of care for him than I received. And my last shoulder surgery was 20, oh, that, was, that shit was a year ago, almost a year ago today. <laughs> my last shoulder surgery was a year ago, and it's still not fucking right. So, yeah, and I don't think it was as um, as significant as his is likely to be. When you're dealing with the labrum, labral tears, which I'm sure there are some, when you're dealing with a hill sacs deformity, um, you probably see them do an open procedure as opposed to a scope, which creates more risk, but a better chance of, I don't know, there's an X procedure that I think they did on one of the quarterbacks with a, a, a severe labrum injury. Again, I'm speculating, but... I really doubt, given that it's already been surgically reconstructed, that he's gonna that he'll ever he'll ever be the same. And you also have to factor in all the damage that shoulder took in this fight, meaning it's even worse now than he went into it, and all the damage he took, period, from this mauling, because he went in there with one arm. So he might have new injuries on top of possible brain damage. He couldn't even use both hands to defend punches. Yeah, no, for sure. I wonder if there was a like if he was promised more money on the back end or some sort of financial commitment, some sort of financial gain. We had. I hope so. I hope it wasn't just a, a decision of des- born of desperation. Maybe he had to sign some kind of waiver saying, "Whatever happens to you here, you can't sue us." Yeah, right. Because and I guess they're lucky that it's in another country because. We're not. We're no longer even talking about the wild, wild west. But fuck, man, we're we're so far beyond that to think that you can tell a referee of your injury, who is a, a, an official, an official licensed by some sort of athletic commission or the promotion itself, I guess, in certain circumstances, and you can tell him, and he's like, "Okay, cool." <laughs> not, hey, let's get a doctor to check this out ahead of time. How about you hold a five pound weight? And let your arm dangle forward and let's see if it dislocates. Let's see if you can actually uh, post behind your back in a sitting position on the ground 
and lean. And if that shoulder dislocates, then you can't fight. Like you wouldn't be able to pass a, a physical f- for any, I don't know, for any true sports physical if your shoulder was that kind of fuckery. I don't know why you would think that fighting a world title fight would ever be in your best interest. And that's the difference between a sport like any other sport, the NHL. The NHL is looking at these athletes, the NBA, uh, the NFL, professional baseball, all of this looking at their fighters like they're million-dollar million-dollar uh, assets, multi-million-dollar assets, not looking at them as disposable to where you would go out and perform. And, you know, would, could, could you imagine if they put took Drew Brees whenever he had that shoulder dislocation and just, like, popped it back in and say, now go in there and play. No MRI, <laughs> nothing. You just fucking go. Do it. He never would have broken the, some of the longest-standing records for, for yards touchdown passes and the like, you know, never would have. But he did. He got an MRI. He had surgery. He recovered. Did did the UFC or did TJ Dillashaw's team or did TJ Dillashaw himself take away that possibility for him to do anything additional in a career that's been, I don't know, marred by performance-enhancing drugs and some injuries? Like He's done some pretty cool shit, but he's a step away from true greatness and did he just take away that opportunity? Like, who knows? Hopefully some sort of surgical intervention can bring him closer closer to normal, somewhere closer to fine, I guess. But we'll see. Now let's talk about Sean O'Malley beating Piotr Jan by split decision. First off, I think you and I, along with every other member of MMA media, had it for Jan. Half the MMA media scores had a shutout 30-27 for Jan. But besides the outcome, there are some things to look at here. I think O'Malley proved several things. That he's fast, even for bantamweight. That he has a chin. And most importantly, that he has composure. But since we both thought Jan won, we already think Jan looked good. So let's table that for now. Let's first talk about O'Malley. What did you think about his performance? And did he impress you at all? And did he answer any questions for you? Well, he definitely impressed me, and I shit on him quite a bit, and I probably owe him an apology. I really do. Um, uh, his, he's improved in the other areas. His takedown defense has improved, his ability to get back to his feet, even some of his submission um, awareness, offensive submission awareness. He looked, he looked much better. He didn't look like a one-trick pony. He didn't look like just a stand-up phenom who was able to coast on being 5'11 in a, um, in a weight class full of much shorter opponents. You know, so he did some really great things, and he has a hell of a chin. So, um, yeah, I thought he was quite impressive. And you know, we can also talk about uh, five rounds versus three rounds because I see a lot of people on the Twitters talking about that. But you give give O'Malley uh, the credit he deserves. He was able to. You know, he he didn't look spent in that third round. He looked like he had a fourth and fifth in him. He did. So you know. Um, I still think Jan did enough to win, but like O'Malley was certainly impressive in his hands and his, his strike selection and his decision making and his ability to give ground and continue to be offensive. It, it did impress me. How was O'Malley finding success in the standup? He he wasn't letting a lower output fighter bully him, and whenever and Jan has the ability to do that to most fighters, and O'Malley was 
throwing that double jab straight right. And he was moving a little bit and giving ground. And, you know, Jan wasn't as, as high volume and aggressive as he needed to be. When he was, he scored a lot. He broke down that distance and didn't allow the, the footwork of, um, of O'Malley to be as problematic as when he just sort of high guard, slow stocked, high guard, slow stocked. Um, you know, so the O'Malley did a really, really good job of letting uh, Jan do what has worked for him in the past. And again, it, people are going to problem solve and reverse engineer your old wins. They're going to look at fight footage. And I think O'Malley and his camp did that pretty well. That's That's my speculation anyway. Now let's talk about Jan. Something we've talked about is what can you do when you're fighting with one eye? We've seen fighters get cut and have blood running into their eye and they can no longer see. And so far, whenever we've studied this scenario, there wasn't much they could do. But Jan, despite blood covering one of his eyes, landed some of his best counters and takedowns with one eye. How did he do this? Well, I think he looked better once he was cut at times because it forced him to be on the fucking on the aggressive. You know, he had to go forward more. What he would do is he would clear that blood away from his eye and then start coming forward immediately. And he wasn't just marching him down to talk about octagon control. He was throwing a little more and he wrestled a little bit more because, again, you get a little bit more strategic whenever you're bleeding like that and you can't see. But when uh, we, we, we I saw someone wrote. Uh, it's funny that the UFC's best boxer had to panic wrestle. Number one, you shouldn't be calling an actual part of MMA panic <laughs> anything, right? <laughs> you had to panic jujitsu. No, like it's part of the game. He's panic boxing. He's panic boxing because he's afraid of the wrestling exchanges. Right? You wouldn't say that. It's silliness. Um, but at the same time, uh, Jan can mix it up. Like he was really good at. Counterpunching. I don't mean just counterpunching, like letting O'Malley go first and then fade off. I mean punching in between some of O'Malley's punches and mixing it up during exchanges. And he needs to do more of that. I think he his style and even like Sterling did a good job of paying attention to those pauses where he would just sort of like throw his guard up, come forward. You can get two and three quick shots off and just fade away. Two and three quick, quick shots off and fade away, or land a decent kick. And if you don't allow him to settle, like O'Malley did at times, didn't when he didn't allow him to settle, he took away that left kick to the body. When he did allow Jan to settle, Jan scored with that left kick to the body uh, and hurt him a few times. The, the importance is for um, to, to not allow him, not to allow Jan just to simply settle and catch a moment or catch his groove. And if you keep fighting the way you do against guys with with greater output, you might find yourself, Jan might find himself on the wrong side of some decisions if they have a good chin. Because what ju judges can see is how much blood was leaking out of the one knee that landed, right? And not how badly those left kicks to the body hurt O'Malley or that left hook that O'Malley was eating time and time again hurt O'Malley. Like because O'Malley has got a pretty decent chin and an even better poker face. So like, fighters are human, or excuse me, uh, fighters are not human most of the time, but no, um, judges are human. So they're going to take a look at the most, I, I guess, 
visible and physically tangible um, measure of 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 fight criteria, which is damage. So you know you gotta you gotta bring that out a little bit more, or else you've got to stay on offense a little bit longer, a little more output. We can all talk about Yon and his ability to to work like a supercomputer, and I think he does. But I think people have started to capitalize on his rhythm, like where he's high guard, walking in, does a little like stomp kick or a calf kick, and he's not. They're not allowing him to catch his rhythm, and now he's only fighting killers in the division. He's not going to be able to do um, what he did to lesser opponents. Now that there's more footage on him, and to explain to listeners why we thought Jan won based on the current UFC judging criteria, which is damage first. So I'm not even saying this just because you got takedowns, and I don't think you're saying the same either. Damage under the unified rules is about effective damage. So yes, I concede that O'Malley hit him more when they were standing, obviously not when they're on the ground, but when they were standing. But majority of those O'Malley shots were partially blocked or fully blocked. So they were either hitting Yawn on his forearms or partially catching his gloves and then partially catching him. And a lot of those kicks were like being partially checked or checked, right? But they're counting all of that. Whereas when Yawn landed his best shots, there was no guard. He hit him clean. They were clean. They were very clean. Yes. Yeah. So he was landing the harder, cleaner shots. O'Malley has death touches in both hands, I think. But the reason why Yon wasn't going down was because he was blocking most of them. So he was throwing hard, but they weren't landing hard. They weren't clean shots. They were shots that were hitting Yon, but not necessarily clean, right? So if we're talking about effective damage and we're just counting the cleanest shots landed, then the scale would tip heavily towards Yon, right? So I think if you're listening to us to just to improve your own martial arts and you're sparring and you're fighting, what you ideally want to do is land clean shots, not shots that have an obstacle in the way, not something where there's something in the lane, somehow occupying space for your shot. You're just landing with nothing there because you're finding, that's literally what we mean by finding the shots, right? Finding meaning, finding a shot where, hey, look, nobody sees this shot coming. There's nothing in the way. It's a free shot. I could land it straight here and there's no glove, no fingers no hands in the way, right? And same thing with his kicks. There was no obstacles. There was no check. He was landing those. So if we're talking about effective damage, if we're talking about clean shots landed, Yawn landed more of those. And that's why we feel swayed that Yawn won. If you're talking about total strikes landed when they were standing and you don't care if it's blocked or not, yeah, then I could see O'Malley winning. Yeah, right. I mean, if you don't understand what it is you're seeing, and I've disagreed with some really, really good fight minds who have some solid breakdowns about about this point about um, when. So they they like what they saw from O'Malley with the knee. That knee was probably the 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 most visibly damaging thing in that entire fight. Maybe even the like the best strike of the fight. If you don't understand how kicks to the body fucking feel, you know. I guess unless you can see someone start pissing blood immediately from a liver or kidney shot, I mean, like that stuff still hurts. So is 
always a grazing elbow that causes blood. Uh, a, a, a greater scoring criteria than like good body work, like f- forever. I mean, is that just how it works? Well, he's bloody. Okay, then we got to wait till the guy goes to the hospital and has, you know, a PET scan on or an MRI on his fucking liver and kidneys to see if we're going to start counting any of that shit for real too. I mean, come on. I don't. I don't like that. I just, it just doesn't ring true to me as like a true fight strategist. You know that that stuff really matters. And the better leg work that was done throughout the fight was probably Jan as well. Um, he, I think he should have done more of it, but he just got a little bit complacent with that high guard walk forward. And if we're going to say that like that that knee to the eye was the most effective strike or the most effectively damaging strike of the entire fight, well, why right after it did Jan probably win the second half of that round? You know, I, I mean, it didn't it didn't do much besides cut him. Yeah, getting knee in the face sucks. But it didn't do enough to sway the rest of that round and keep uh well, because he was fighting desperate, he knew he was behind. No, he was fighting like a guy who was bleeding out of one fucking eyeball, right? It was pretty bad. So it put him on the aggressive, you know. I thought that was enough to to win him the fight. O'Malley is really tall for this division. But Jan was able to overcome that distance to land his own power shots. How did he do that? Well, Jan does a good job of punching uphill. He got a nice left hook. So if you try to lead, if he tries to, if O'Malley tries to sneak outside to his weak side, it's not really his weak side. And he fights from both hand, both stances really well. So you know, continuing to, to go with um, an approach that cuts off the ring or cuts off the cage, mind you, is how you're able to sort of track someone who has pretty good footwork down like O'Malley. You got to track them down. You got to cut them off. And then you try to get them uh, not just relying on that little drop step and poking out a couple ones and twos. But as as much success as Jan did have breaking down that distance, you can't just, you got to be a, lo- a little more dynamic in your approach. And you can't just sit down on that hook every time. Like he's, people are starting to pick up on his timing and his rhythm. Some more adjustments are going to be necessary. Strategic adjustments are going to be necessary for Jan going forward against the creme de la creme in this division. So, you know, I'd I'd hate to see him get outpointed on a regular basis, um, or with as strong as his striking is. I'd hate to see him become a wrestler in order to to sneak rounds. Before, when there wasn't as much information, much data available on him. He was more of a problem. Now I think people are taking his high guard, um, walk you down, low volume approach at times, and and thinking they can sneak out or sneak out a win against them. But again, I'll say this again: when he's fighting in exchanges, he almost always wins them. He's really fucking good at it. So I think he doesn't have to be this um, master of precision. And he can he can go in there. This might be one of the few times you'll hear me say, "I think he need a little more swinging and banging at him." <laughs> so he's got the vision and the timing on his left hook, where he can find that shot. He finds right hands constantly. And if you try to cheat him to the weak side, he'll spin on you. He's diverse enough, and he's good enough. And I think if he brings a little bit more and gives him a little bit more to sort of to contend with, 
I think we'll see some more opportunities, probably uh, get back to his winning ways. Now, both fighters were constantly stance switching, but it felt like for different reasons. What strategy were both fighters trying to employ with their stance switching? Uh, well, it seemed like the the stance switching of um, of Sean O'Malley was more like a lot of evasive. While he's moving backwards, he's doing that little shift away, and then he can be long from both sides. And it also forced uh, a very smart fighter in in Jan to make those adjustments based on the adjustments he's seeing. And the more you can sort of get Jan making the adjustment to you, you're keeping him off of his offense. And if you can do that in a three-round fight when he tends to start a little bit slow, I think there's some pretty good strategy from O'Malley and his camp in that. And I think, uh, again, where O'Malley doesn't seem to do very well is when people get get right in his shit, you know? And it doesn't allow him to start breaking down information. Because I, I give O'Malley a lot of shit, but I think he's a little smarter than I give him credit for also. I think he's one of those fighters that sees things while he's in there and can make real-time adjustments. So, you know, one being... Going backwards and leading the dance seems counterintuitive, but that's sort of what O'Malley was doing with his stance shifting. And Jan was sort of following, but still scoring. Like he threw a nice left kick to the body whenever O'Malley switched to the southpaw stance, and it was, it was nice, really good. If you love the Southpaw Project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. Now we got to talk about Bilal Muhammad's win over Sean Brady by TKO. Now Muhammad hasn't had a win via punches since 2016. Sean Brady has been undefeated in 15 fights and has been taking everyone down, but he couldn't take Muhammad down. Muhammad has been evolving, which we've discussed before. He was even outstriking Vicente Luque. Muhammad now has eight wins in a row against stiff competition. But he was actually the underdog against Brady. So how did Muhammad get the job done? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that maybe Bilal Muhammad might have, and people are going to shit on me for this, but I don't give a shit. I got, I got thick skin and broad shoulders. I can take it. I think he might be one of the smartest fighters in the game. I really do. When I talk about Sean O'Malley having vision and seeing things in there, fucking hate does Bilal Muhammad see stuff in there. And like, we can obviously straight punches and a good chin really, really helped Bilal in this fight. And we also seem to see all of Brady's takedowns attempts. And he's, I also think that he was in there wrestling with some, some studs out of Penn State. Who was? Um, Blau. There was uh, some video of him working with, and I think the, the kid's like 135 or he's not, not very big. Maybe, maybe 157 or the weight class those are now. But this, what this might boil down to is Blau might be able to match uh, Brady's wrestling, and he also may be able to match Brady's strength, and I really think he does. We spoke of spoke to it before. This is another example of a very strong fighter in Sean Brady, and apparently Sean Brady is fuck you strong. But when you get matched up with someone whose strength is also problematic, right? And Bilal Muhammad is a very strong fighter. Now all of a sudden, 
the things that you do and the way that you do them has to adjust. And it didn't seem like Brady was was able to make that adjustment. Is Muhammad another fighter with underrated striking? See, that's <laughs> how do I say this? Because I really like Bilal Muhammad. Um, it's effective, but it's very, very flawed. And if you took if you took away his cardio, wrestling, and chin, you know, we'd we'd see those flaws a lot more clearly. You know, uh, but I'll, I'll say this again: he's a tragically underrated tactician and strategist, though, and I think he sees so much in the cage, and that that's the reason why he can. I don't think there's any fighter who has as limited striking technique that would be as effective with their striking, especially against someone uh, like Sean Brady. And Sean Brady's really coming to his own as a fighter offensively, but holy fuck, Sean Brady couldn't get out of the way of a straight punch if his life depended on it. And poor Mohammed couldn't get out of the way of a left hook if his life fucking depended on it. So it made for must-see TV. It was a really fun fight to watch. Um, if, if anyone tuned in thinking it was going to be a, a wrestling snooze fest, short of like each of these guys trying to grind each other into the cage and eke out the most boring win in fight history. What you got was two fighters who have been improving their offense, but their offense is also built around them both sort of staying on center line and trying to take in a lot of information visually. And neither one of these guys gets out of the way of, of uh, a punch very well. So it's just a, a set of circumstances where, Balao sees a little bit more, and he's been in the UFC a lot longer. And uh, you know, he's like I said, I think he might be one of uh, the better tacticians in the entire sport. It's not necessarily he's good at boxing, but he knows what he's looking for. Yeah, like he'll he'll throw like two jabs that miss, and then he was just missing with that walk-in overhand right. So most people want to counter after that second jab, and he was throwing that. It wasn't even like an overhand. It was like a, it was a straight, but there was a little bit of an arc to it to punch around Brady's guard. Brady has pretty disciplined hand position. They train him well down there in Philly. They absolutely do. But after like throwing those jabs as range finders and then coming over the top later in the second round, he really found a nice one. Um, and he built off of that information that he was allowed to, he was able to process throughout the fight and he was scoring with it. And I don't know why everyone was just, so adamant that Brady won that first round. I don't think he did. I watched it twice. I think Bilal did enough in the second half of that fight and the second half of that round to have given him the round. Um, and th- I take nothing away from Sean Brady. I thought Sean Brady did some good stuff. But the, a lot of straight punches were sneaking through. Um, I think the, some of those punches hurt Brady and not necessarily hurt him like his chin isn't durable, but his nose is a fucking mess. And he was punching him right in the mush the entire time. Or, or uh, Bilal was punching Brady in the mush the entire time, touching that nose. And you no, know, when you can't breathe and your breathing gets labored, you're swallowing blood, your rhythm gets a little bit fucked up, and your eyes start to water. All those things considered, I think you know the the straight punches were the the tail of the fight, the uh, ability of. Uh, Bilal to find them against a guy as that's a fucking that's a tough task physically in front of you with with Sean Brady. It really is. I mean, his offensive, his both these guys have pretty decent offensive striking. Like I said, technically, I would say 
Brady's is better, but neither one of them like has spent much time on a slip bag or a maze bag and done that head work. You know? And I get it. These guys are allowed to be super offensive because their wrestling is what it is and their strength off the chart. But a little bit more uh, defensive acumen and visual acuity might serve both these fighters well. But if anyone works great with that limitation to their game, it's Bilal Muhammad. What's been interesting to see is Muhammad has been beating each of his opponents in a different way. How much of this is preparation and game planning? I say a ton. I say a ton. I mean, I think that's the, the great differentiator here is the preparation and game planning of, of his camp and of the, the, the fight IQ and overall intellect of Bilal Muhammad as an individual. He just seems to get it, and he's not phased by needing to be entertaining. He's just not. And you only get a chance to knock out Sean Brady because you beat Vincente Luque. And if you don't do that, fighting a little bit boring, you don't have this opportunity to knock off just a, a surging up-and-comer in Sean Brady, an undefeated prospect who's making some real noise in the division. You're able to do that because you didn't take a beating engaging in a slugfest with Vincente Luque. You know, you wrestled a little bit when you needed to, and yeah, it was boring, and I know everyone thinks it's boring, but hey, the goal is to win. And then we can talk about how Bala Muhammad was boring until he knocked out Sean Brady and wasn't so fucking boring that day. Muhammad seems like a thoughtful fighter who really thinks about his opponent's weaknesses. What do you think he and his team spotted in Brady because Muhammad was willing to get touched up from the beginning of the fight to look for his right, which tells me he thought he would eventually find it? So that, that's a good question. I don't know about in, in terms of, of preparation and game planning, but I do think that he, it, while he was able to download that information, and he was throwing that double jab. He was throwing his jab. He was scoring with it at times. And then sometimes he was missing. And he would keep his feet moving, even though he wouldn't overcommit his feet and hips forward. And it, that's why he was able to keep his hips back in a lot of t- uh, Brady's takedown attempts. And then he decided not to, right? He decided to walk in. And he threw it. And he brought his rear foot, his back foot with him. And he cracked him. So I think he was just, rather than getting caught up in forcing something before it's there is continue to work it. And if we saw, if you saw the, the right hands that were sort of just missing, um, some of them were actually connecting and it's this weird Paul Felder love of Sean Brady and the rest of the, the uh, commentary boost love of Paul Felder that sort of kept them from like admitting some of those right hands got through and they were like you saw, you saw Brady blink it off, but in, reason he was able to go to that right hand again again he would score with it and then he would throw a low kick right to the calf and then he would score or just miss with it and he would throw a left kick to the body and those were the things Bilal Muhammad was doing to keep the fight as a strike selection diverse enough and still scoring with him because he scored a nice left kick to the body in the first round to get Brady's attention and not let him sit on any one technique and those punches, those right hands that were just missing or that he was throwing so straight and so true earlier, he put a little bit of a different trajectory on it and he fucking cracked him. He was able to find him. 
Again, I think that goes to being able to break down and interpolate that data in real time. And not all fighters are capable of it. The more exposure and repetition you get, the better you get at it. But still, you can do everything right your entire career, but not have that fundamental it factor, that fundamental gift of being able to take that information and interpolate it correctly. I think uh, Bala Muhammad you know, does all that stuff pretty well. And I know it sounds like I'm talking about how how smart of a fighter he is. I just think that like he has some other like physical gifts. Like he's super strong and has great cardio and a really big chin. The ability to take in information against a dangerous fighter is really, really important. If you can start to take in that information and score on it, rather than always being back on your heels, I don't want to say scared, but anxiety-ridden, or at least somewhat chastened by an over-analysis, then like, you, know, you, you can start to do some things. And I think that that ability to take that information is what makes uh, Bilal Muhammad a bit of a problem for a lot of fighters and also why his limited striking looks so much better. He's also good at really putting together straight punches when you pause. And he'll put them right together. And if you go double high guard or you parry, protect, and both your hands are in front of your face, he'll just storm you to your hips, right? Just surge into your hips and dump you on your ass. He'll he'll fight you that way. But if you're not giving him that, then um, he'll continue to, to eat your lunch down the middle, which it was strange because he was scoring with some of those same shots against Vincente Luque, who is just a fantastic stand-up fighter. Yeah, with Sean, what it looked like to me is as Muhammad was catching him with his right, Brady started leaning away from them. Like he saw it, he started anticipating it. He started like, I don't mean leaning away in a good defensive way. I mean, hesitating, like kind of anticipating it. So then his defense became leaning back. And so the final punch that really rocked him, it seemed like Sean was just like leaning away from all the punches. He just didn't want to get hit. He was just kind of backing up and leaning away. And he didn't have his correct posture. He didn't have his defenses. He didn't have any obstacles in the way. And Bilal coming forward now, not worried about the takedowns anymore, was able to crack him. And then from there, it was all academic. So maybe it's all because of, to your point, Muhammad was consistently landing and grazing him, but not really landing hard yet, but enough to get into Brady's head that this guy might actually crack me here. But somehow that works against you. Thinking that you might get cracked actually gets you cracked sometimes. Absolutely, right? And the straight punches don't have to be super hard if they hit you right in the nose. Anyone who's ever done any parry slip drills and you're not throwing super hard, but you punch them like I call getting punched in the mush, man. Right? Center mass, it hits you right in the nose. And like all of a sudden, you just, your nose is running, you're blinking, you keep checking your nose if you're bleeding. And then it's like, oh, my fault. Like, like, yeah, just be more careful with that. That's not a true punch, and it still bothers you, right? You still get a little pissed off when it happens, when people uh, just are a little bit over aggressive whenever you're training. So when you have the smaller gloves on and you keep touching that same spot over and over and over, and it doesn't look like it's anything catastrophic, but it builds up. And anyone who's seen Sean, uh, Sean Brady's nose in any of his previous fights, it, they alluded to it in the fight. Um, that it, it's been surgically repaired. That's a bit of a problem. And he just they just kept touching it, touching it. 
And the one thing about straight shots is if you don't lunge, if you don't bring your feet so far forward, if you don't overcommit and get overly aggressive and punch yourself beyond your opponents, it's tough for them to beat you to your hips. And that's sort of what um, what you saw with Muhammad was him keeping his hips back on a lot of it so that he couldn't get counter-wrestled. But he was still scoring because he seems to have pretty decent reach. And he was still scoring with some of them until he decided to bring his feet with him one time, which Brady, thinking that he can lean or shoulder roll a little bit out of harm's way, now all of a sudden, Bilal stays in better punching position with his feet underneath him and steps into one and fucking pow, cracks him right Right side that, and that's the, the that's the punch that started it all. I think Muhammad has deceptive size because sometimes you know when he's not in the ring and just walking around, or you see pictures of him, or sometimes he does some of the post fight analysis stuff. You see him, and you see his proportions, and you're like, you know, I think Muhammad can fight 155, or you're like, he's a small welterweight. And then when I saw him in the cage with Brady, who's huge you saw that they were the same size and it's like, oh, it's because Muhammad is really like broad. Like he has really wide shoulders, wide hips, thick legs. And his back too, right? His back is real, real thick. Yeah, he's huge back. So he's deceptively large. So to your point, I think he probably does have this reach that we don't anticipate. So maybe that's also hard for his opponents to read because of his build. Because he doesn't look so tall and angular, you're like, he probably can't reach me here. And then he does. Yeah, I think that might be it. And when, when he decides to bring his fighters, whether we want to admit it or not, start to pick up on patterns, even if it's not, like, if you're not conscious of it. And that's why it's good for, for fighters to, and I understand, I fight how I fight, how I fight. I get all that. You stay where you're strongest. But like when you get to the higher levels of this thing, People start to pick up on timing and rhythm. And some of those gifts are what make like good fighters great fighters. And why other fighters who have the physical tools, but not necessarily like the visual acuity and the ability to to take that data and pick up on other people's rhythm or other people's timing might keep them from ever being truly great or super high level. And I think that that uh Bilal Muhammad has that and it, it decided to fight in a diverse enough manner. He was throwing left kicks to the body um, even when he was scoring with his ones and twos. He didn't just stay upstairs and gave uh, Sean Brady so much more to consider, so much more to look at. And that can be disruptive in keeping someone who, like Felder referred to it during the, the commentary, that Sean Brady likes to counter-strike. Because when you try to counter strike back, he'll take you down and go to your hips. And beat your hips, and he's super strong. And he's good at. He's pretty clean with his finishes. And he's just a, a monster on top. Bilal took a lot of that stuff away from him. He really did. And again, not overcommitting, not getting overly aggressive. Fighting within yourself is really, really important. And like, I don't know. I mean, I had, I had. Bilal win in the first round, but it, does anyone trust the judges not to not to skew towards an undefeated fighter that seems to be high on the pretty or pretty high on the UFC's radar? Like you know, so he fought strategic until an opportunity arose, and then he then he really capitalized on that opportunity. There was actually a lot of invisible wrestling happening. 
people will be like, oh, it's two grapplers that cancels each other out and they were just striking, right? So you just think of this as purely a striking affair. But I would actually argue there was a lot of wrestling happening. It's just not apparent to people who don't know what wrestling can often look like. It doesn't always look like takedowns like you see or scrambles or whatever. Like maybe they think wrestling is what we saw with Benil Darius versus Mateus Gamrot. But this is the kind of wrestling that it made me think about something that Coach Zach Goldrosen always talks about, which is the good wrestling is where, as far as takedown defense goes, you shouldn't even have to scramble. You should already be beating them with your head position and your hands, right? Before they could even get to your hips, where they can't get deep enough. And that's what I kept seeing in this fight where Sean wasn't even close enough to chain or do something else because Muhammad would already be stuffing his hands, stuffing his head, fighting him off already with his hands, getting the better head position. And so Brady was nowhere close to his hips, nowhere near taking him down. And so he was forced to strike with them. And then we saw what we saw. So what was Muhammad doing here besides just the things I pointed out? And is this an improvement than what we've seen from him in the past? Or did he always have great takedown defense? Well, it's a risk-reward calculation. And I'll tell you why. Um, yes, his uh, Bilal Muhammad's wrestling de- or defense was good. And there was a lot of invisible wrestling. Part of invisible wrestling is like mirroring your opponent's height in head position, like where, where are they? And that's one of the reasons I think, um, and I, I, I sort of poked fun a little bit that Muhammad couldn't get out of the way of a left hook if it, it was life dependent on it. But I think that's one of the reasons. And that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty risky calculation to say, I'll eat this left hook so as long as I don't, if you drift your head back past your hips in an attempt to let that, that hook go right past your face, all of a sudden, you're in the worst wrestling position ever. Your shoulders are no longer forward over your knees. You, you're not in good, fundamentally athletic position. You've actually given a, a clear path to your hips. And Sean Brady's too strong and too good of a wrestler. Just, just bulldoze you, steamroll you, go right through you. So he sort of stayed in position and stayed within his stance the entire time, which made him a little more susceptible to that hook early. But he was eating it fine because he was, I don't know, he was very present in the pocket. And it, like there were no secondary or tertiary attacks, and the ones that Brady ever did get off in the wrestling realm, they were pretty telegraphed. And uh, like like we said before, like Bilal can wrestle and he's strong, so like he just kept getting his hips back and counter wrestled if he ever had to. And also he did he Bilal did a great job of wrestling feints where he would just like score with a jab and then lower his level a little bit like he was going to reach for a, like a snatch single and then Brady would bring his hips back and he'd come right out of his stance, Bilal would, and go right to the one-two. It was some good stuff and that's why he was able to score with it. Mixing that stuff in may not be the sexiest, but I tell you what, if you know what you're watching, if you know what you're looking at, you'll see that like there was some good stuff. You called it invisible wrestling. There was a ton of that going on. The feints especially were great. The mirroring of position was great to not let the what the the young undefeated wrestler beat you to your hips. He brought a little bit of like veteran savvy into it all, and you know he he looked fucking great doing it. I liked it. I think this is a good fight for fans or even martial artists to watch to see what defensive wrestling can look like 
like this is a fight that they should study because normally you see somebody even fake a shot and they go immediately to the sprawl, right? And this is where I think back to what Coach Zach talks about. He's like, the sprawl should be the last thing you do, right? And so you see this all the time where they don't even make contact yet and the person already is sprawling and trying to get back up. Once they see that, then they just fake a shot for you to sprawl and then try to hit you while you're coming up. Whereas Muhammad showed you don't need to sprawl. He had a sprawl in his back pocket. I don't know when the last time I saw where somebody was level changing and reaching for the leg and the person defending the takedown was not only head to head with them, but was grabbing his hands by the wrist and already prying it off before he even had reach the leg, right? He's already fighting it off. He's not fighting it off after it grabs his leg. He's fighting it off and hand fighting before it even gets to his leg. So I think this is a good thing to watch be like, oh, this is what you should be doing so that you don't have to sprawl because sprawling in a fight is very dangerous if the person is faking a shot or that means that that person now knows that's all you have. You go straight to plan C or D right away, right? So Muhammad is showing like, no, it's so much easier and also less energy. Less of an energy spent. Yes. Yeah. Just to hand fight and mirror them and get in the same level as them and head position. By the time you're a 40 year veteran, right? You can't fight MMA anymore, but he fought like somebody who had that much veteran savvy. Yes, he really did. And the, the, the calculus involved in saying, hey, I'm going to make sure I keep myself in good position. He may get this left hook off on me, even though I got lunched by a left hook that, that sent me to the shadow realm against Vincente Luke, and that's a punch I need to be worried of. He wasn't. Like, he was present. He was very, very present. And that kind of non-spastic, non-wild fighting, when you're in control, when you're fighting within yourself, it may not always be the most fan-friendly, but I'll say it again. Look, I like some of the other the, uh, uh, the other podcasts out there that they say some pretty clever shit and they make fun of Bilal Muhammad for being boring. But if he wasn't boring in his last fight against Luke, he wouldn't have been able to uh, to get this fight against Sean Brady. And it was a fight that really showed that he's made some improvements. And if he has to be, if he has to be a little little sexier, he can. Oh, but hey. Do the do the non-sexy stuff so well that it forces the fight to stay in that striking world where we can ha- we can all have a little more fun. But rather than pretending that world doesn't exist, not working on it, not not truly we talk about embracing the grind by sparring hard. No, man, it's so much more than that. It's putting yourself in those positions that aren't fun. Someone else's chin underneath your jaw, or someone else's forehead underneath your jaw. Coming up underneath your chin, look in the hand fight, little position things, things that make you so tired that your joints just ache. Those are the little things you need to be doing day in and day out so you can keep the fight where you want it, where you really, truly want it, right? If not, like you can't complain. There's always Muay Thai. There's always boxing. There are other sports that don't have that element. But if you get great at those elements, where do you see a, str- a, a wrestler? gas out against you because you were do Felder did it over and over and over. He gassed out better wrestlers, really strong wrestlers. And when they were useless after that, he would just literally beat the shit out of them in the most exciting, most violent fashion. Fighters are allowed to do that. Get great at that aspect of it. And you can see some some 
more enjoyable stuff. And I think we're starting to see that with, with Bilal. But granted, he's so good at the other boring phases or phases that other fighter, fighters and fans consider boring that he could very well just go back to that. Either way, like, hey, if he's able to mix in a few of these beatings uh, every once in a while too, we'll still tune in to, to see, you know, right? Can he be that savvy old man that can figure it out this time against the surging up-and-comer? Who knows? If not, you know, you can keep you can keep hating and just have to check out his fucking highlights on his way to another title. It was one on his way to a title shot. All right. If you like this episode and you like what we do, support us on Patreon. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program if you want to train with us from wherever you are. There's lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory, believe it or not. You can find Liberation Martial Arts online, also on Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. With all that said, catch y'all next time. I see you folks.